0: Form of comics into What you need is a hobby. words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense for to watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round nobody cares basketball year-round nobody cares put on a star trek uniform people get a case of the giggles yeah hi somebody told me they make comic books here oh, that's from superman smallville you've been trying that jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade it doesn't work oh, it works you guys must read too many comic books or something people do not masturbate in the dc universe that was the biggest load of crap i've ever heard Welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and lately I've been reading a shitload of Batman comics, and I think the reason for that should be fairly obvious. So, normally what I talk about, though, is comics, movies, and TV shows. That's my official mandate. You know, but as many of you know, you longtime listeners, what I, what I've been known to do is basically spend quite a lot of time talking about a particular uh, character or topic or theme or idea or storyline or just what have you, right? And the reason for that is because where the rubber meets the road with my podcast. I use a pretty simple format when you think about it, you know? I have six episodes where I talk about basically anything I want. Then I have a seventh episode where, at least on paper, what I'm supposed to do is join forces with uh, Chris Honeywell so that he and I can just shoot the bull with one another about various alternative types of topics. And then I have an eighth episode where I always, always, always talk about Smallville. And then I start all over again with six more episodes about whatever I want, and then another seventh episode with Chris Honeywell, then another eighth episode about Smallville, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And so I guess the structure of my show allows... Basically, what it allows is for me to be... A little bit creative with my content, you know? Basically, the stuff that I release week after week. And I think one of the things that I at least like about my show, apart from the sort of scattershot nature that it can have, at least at times, is it it can also provide focus. You know, it can be as, I guess, neurotic and sort of ADD as I want it to be, or it can be as focused as I want it to be, you know? It's all up to me, you know? And as it relates to, I guess, recent months, obviously, you know, there's been a lot of Batman for me, you know, a lot of Batman comics that I've been reading. And today, what I want to do is talk about a particular Batman uh, story that, again, this is one of those Batman stories that isn't going to end up on anybody's greatest Batman stories ever told list. It's just not that important a story. But at the same time, this is one of those stories that I've always really enjoyed. You know? It's always had a high place in I in my esteem of Batman and who and what this character is. And what uh, the Batman titles were at this time, you know? And ah, hell with it. I'm just going to get right into it. Basically, I'm going to be talking about a two-part Batman story called Well, I don't think it actually has an official name, this two-part story. I don't think it has an official name, but it is nevertheless a two-part story. So I suppose what we can do just for um, ease of classification, we can just uh, call this story The Crimesmith, and as I'll get into a little bit later on in this in this discussion I love the idea of the crimesmith but like I say I'll circle back to that later for right now though the first comic that I'm going to be talking about is Batman number 443 Batman 443 cover date is January 1990 on sale date is November the 28th 1989 cover price is $1 penciler is Jim Aparo Inker is Mike DiCarlo. Writer is Marv Wolfman. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist is Adrian Roy. Associate Editor is Dan Raspler. Editor is Denny O'Neill. Title is The Coming of the Crimesmith. Story synopsis is as follows. Batman saves a family of joggers from some street thugs who are attempting to mug them. This isn't a completely solo mission, though. Tim Drake is along for the ride so that he can observe Batman in action and understand what fighting crime in Gotham City is really like. This is all part of Tim's training to become Robin. Actually, I'm going to put the synopsis on on pause and say, the decision to train Tim Drake as Robin was made in Batman number 442, the issue immediately preceding this one. So, you know, those of you continuity hounds who are listening, bear that in mind. To get back into the story synopsis, though, later, back at Wayne Manor, Bruce calls Lucius Fox and asks who Jeffrey Fraser is and what Lucius uh, Lucius knows about him. Lucius explains that Jeffrey Fraser is a consultant who was used by Wayne Enterprises three years ago and single-handedly saved one of their projects. Bruce explains that the reason he was even asking is because Fraser called recently, offering some, some help with trouble that Wayne Tech has been experiencing lately. Elsewhere, Commissioner Gordon and some Gotham City cops have found a dead body. Not much is known for certain yet, but the cause of death is obviously Burns. The weird part, though, is the flame started inside the body and then worked out. Batman is watching the whole thing from the shadows when he sees a flash of light near the crime scene and so he heads off to investigate. He tumbles onto a robbery in progress and finds some thugs in the middle of stealing millions of dollars worth of fur coats. Batman intervenes and takes down two of the three thieves. The third one refuses to talk, though. Even Batman can't scare him into answering just who has arranged this robbery. The next day, Bruce and Lucius meet with Jeffrey Fraser and his secretary, Raya. Bruce hammers out a deal whereby Fraser will restore public confidence in Wayne Tech in exchange for five years of funding for his scientific work. Later that night, Batman visits Gordon at his home. Waking Gordon up, Batman asks uh, if there have been any unusual break-ins lately where thieves have circumvented high-tech security systems. Gordon explains uh, to Batman that there's been a string of recent burglaries which fit that profile. Elsewhere, in a secret hideout, a petty thief called Montgomery Marr meets with an unknown underworld crime boss called the Crime Smith. The Crime Smith, it turns out, plans crimes for other people to carry out in exchange for a cut of the money. The crime, Smith agrees to use Montgomery Marr for a robbery that he's been planning. He then fires a mysterious dart into Marr's neck, calling it a guarantee against Marr betraying him to the authorities. Later, Marr and his crew easily penetrate a sophisticated security system in order to steal a shitload of luxury and exotic cars. Batman intervenes, beats the shit out of Mar's entire crew, and then demands that Mar tell him who planned this entire operation. Mar says the name Crimesmith, at which time he bursts into flames and dies a pretty grisly death, leaving Batman to wonder just who the hell the Crimesmith is. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, from the get-go, this is a very eye-catching cover. Uh, It's basically a picture of, I think we're supposed to assume this is uh, Montgomery Marr bursting into flames as Batman and Commissioner Gordon recoil in in horror and shock and confusion, just what the hell is going on. And it's it's a really well-done cover. You know, it looks like spontaneous combustion, and he's got flames pouring out of his ears, out of his mouth, out of his uh, eyes, everything really except his nose. And he's clutching his neck, and, you know, gouts of flame are shooting out of that. And overall, I mean, this is a very shocking cover, but it's also, the amount of flame, or at least yellow ink, on this cover, It it's almost like it's overdone. I mean, I realize this is supposed to be a pretty horrifying sight, but it's, it's, there's so much yellow on the cover that it blocks out other detail in the art. And so I'm not criticizing, you understand. I'm just saying that there's a, there's a clarity uh, to this cover that is perhaps, well, maybe it's not everything that it could be, put it that way. Nevertheless, this is a, a pretty eye-catching cover. And this is one of the things that caught my eye about this cover when I first picked it up when I was a kid. Now, full disclosure, I did not actually buy this comic book when it was brand new on the shelves. I traded for this comic book as a back issue. And basically what happened was, there was this kid that lived just up the street from me when I was nine years old. And basically what was going on was... Actually, I may have been, t- uh, I, I may have either been 10 years old or about to turn 10 years old, but either way, basically, what was going on was I was trying to get my hands on as many Batman comics as I possibly could. And so, you know, I would buy comics or I would trade for comics as much as possible, you know. The idea being that was, at least at that time, probably the most efficient way for me to expand my collection. Because you know how it is, you're 10 years old, you don't have a job, and you don't really have a car to go to the LCS or to go to Walden Books or just to go to wherever to pick up your stuff, and so instantly you're limited in terms of the new issues that you can buy. But in terms of the back issues, I mean, unless you know somebody who has a collection of back issues with which they're willing to part, then pretty much the LCS is your only real option if you're a child in 1990. And so, as it happens, somewhat luckily for me, there was a a kid that lived up the street from uh, my house, and he had a, not a huge collection of Batman comics, but he had a fair number of Batman comics that he was interested in in parting ways with. And so I was able to trade him some G.I. Joe action figures in exchange for some Batman comics. And as I recall, I think the ratio that he and I worked out was one G.I. Joe action figure for one Batman comic. And so that is how I came about getting my grubby little paws on Batman number 441, 442, and 443. I basically had three G.I. Joe action figures that I'd I'd somehow gotten my hands on. God knows I didn't buy them off the racks, but I'd somehow gotten my hands on some G.I. Joe action figures, and so I pretty much just used those as currency because... In 1990, I think G.I. Joe action figures were still a thing, but I don't know that they were... I don't think they were quite as prolific as they had been earlier in the 80s, right? Well, this kid, he still loved G.I. Joe, this guy, Adam, that lived up the street from me that had these Batman comics. He... He still had a fixation for G.I. Joe, and so... I guess bartering for Batman comics using G.I. Joe as current G.I. Joe action figures as currency. That's about as good a metric as anything else, you know, but you now the fact is neither of us had any money uh to use to facilitate these transactions. So pretty much the only option either of us had was some kind of a barter. I should mention here that he had a couple of of Batman comics, like I say. But the way it goes in my mind is his dad was a little bit of a collector when he himself was a kid, because he had a fair number of of Silver Age Batman comics, and what really stands out in my mind is that there were a lot of Batman comics from the late 50s and the early 60s, which, when you think about it, I mean, that's a pretty... Fucking weird time for Batman comics, but nevertheless, that's how it happened. And so he had just reams of these late 50s, early 60s comics. And like I say, the thing that really stood out in my mind was Batman comics. I mean, I'm sure there, I mean, in fact, I I know for a fact that he had some Flash comics in there as well, but in 1990. I think Batman was pretty much the center of my attention, you know? I think that's where a lot of my uh, collecting focus was, you know, when it, uh, it it pretty much it all came down to Batman. I mean, I, it's not like I, I ignored Superman that year, but I spent a considerable amount of time uh, tracking down as many Batman comics as I possibly could. Oh, shit. And I can't believe I forgot about this. Um, in addition to the aforementioned uh, Batman 440, 441, and 442 uh, that I used to... Uh, or sorry, 441, 442, and 443. I think that was it. That I used uh, G.I. Joe action figures uh, as bartering tools. I also, in that same transaction, managed to get the first three parts of Batman Year 3. I had to, I had to buy the final chapter of Batman Year 3 as a back issue, just sometime I went to the LCS. But otherwise, I got a good chunk of that story from this kid, Adam, right? And, you know, the thing about it was, I didn't really like Adam all that much. I thought he was kind of a jerk. But, and I and I think the the feeling was pretty mutual, actually. But, I guess toys and comics, they make strange bedfellows when you're a kid, because you know, he and I were able to put aside our differences at least long enough for him to take delivery of my G.I. Joe action figures and for me to take delivery of his Batman comics. So I guess in the end, everything worked out. It just the guy was kind of a jerk. So whatever. Anyway, this cover, though, and here's the point. This cover was one of the things that really caught my eye when I was digging through his inventory. And I knew for sure that what I wanted was to go home and have this comic book in hand when I did. And sure enough, that's how things played out. So this wasn't exactly my first exposure to Jim Aparo's work. I, I believe, without double-checking, I think he had at least one or two stories uh, that were reprinted in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, but... That was like 1970s era, Jim Apero, when, in fairness, I think he was a little bit more on top of his game. You know, I think by this point in uh, Jim Apero's career, well, it's perhaps fair to say that his best days were behind him. So, in any case, uh, like I say, pretty eye-catching cover, not exactly the most technically perfect cover that you've ever seen, and I acknowledge that, but it's like, at the same time, I don't know why. It's like, it just doesn't matter, you know? This is an eye-catching cover, so anyway. To finally get into the issue proper, though, like I was uh, saying a minute ago, this, this comic was not my first exposure to Jim Apero's work, but I do think this was early exposure to sort of latter-day Jim Apero, right? And the way that his style, his line style, had evolved and changed and kind of shifted, well, it had caught at at least me off guard. I wasn't really prepared for how much things had really changed for Apero since the mid to late 70s, you know? I wasn't ready for that. So it this was I remember this issue being I guess part of my Jim Apero adjustment, you know? Where I had to recognize the fact and I think this was the first time I really became cognizant of this reality. I had to recognize the fact that an artist's style it Ideally, it's supposed to grow and macha- and change, and it's supposed to mature, and I guess in the midst of all this, hopefully improve. Now, it can evolve and it can change, for sure, but these evolutions aren't necessarily done, I guess, going in the direction of improvement. You know, there are a lot of artists out there who have kind of gotten worse as they've gone along, and... I always kind of point back to John Romita Jr. as a guy who started off really strong, but then something happened to his art. I don't know what it is, but his style really changed when he started doing uh, Daredevil, Man Without Fear. And then after that, it just got a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse. And it's to the point now where it's really hard for me to set eyes on John Romita Jr.'s work, you know. But when you when you start going backwards in time a little bit, you look at his first run on Spider-Man, or you look at his Iron Man stuff, and that stuff is rock solid. So I don't know what the hell happened to the guy, but it's like at some point an artist, it's like they do something where they so screw up their own style that it's like they never really recover from it. And I don't think Jim Apero is necessarily as egregious as John Romita Jr. when it comes to that. You know, because I can still read latter-day Jim Apero comics. That's the point. Whereas John Romita Jr., yeah. but nevertheless, Jim Apero's best days, you could fairly say, were behind him. And his work just wasn't as captivating in the late 80s and then all through the 90s as it had been in the 70s, at least for my money, you know? And this issue is a good example of what I'm talking about. You know, from a technical standpoint of telling a story visually, it's a this story is about as good as anything that Jim Apero has ever done, but if you just look at the line style, you know, just look at the work, I don't know, It's it's like something just kind of changed at some point you know so anyway but i'm here again i am rambling so this to to continue with uh the story and getting in, and getting into a uh, page two this is this really this whole two-parter is this is a very interesting take on batman and it's not one that you see just everywhere it's like if you just describe it to people, you know, a lot of people would say, yeah, this is what I love seeing Batman do. But it's like, so rarely do we see him do stuff like this. And a good example of what I'm talking about, it's actually right here on page two, where the father wrestles one of the, uh, the muggers and basically tries to defend his family from getting shot to death, right? And as he's struggling with one of the muggers, the gun... We see this kind of POV shot at the, at the bottom of uh, page two, where the mugger sort of twists his gun back in and points it at the father, and the son is watching in horror, and Batman is watching all of this happen, and instantly you know what Batman's emotional content is with all of this. You know, um, a family being attacked by a mugger, or in this case a group of muggers, and the parents are in mortal danger while the child helplessly watches. Gee, I wonder why Batman would take something like that personally. So, as all of this is happening, though, Batman is watching, but he's not, he's not seen yet, you know? But the instant the, the gun gets pointed at the father, Batman flings a battering and it whacks that guy. This is taking us into page three. It whacks one of the muggers right in the hand. And this is, again, if you just describe what's happening, a lot of people will tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, this is great. This is what I love seeing Batman do. You know, he takes, uh, he temporarily knocks one of these muggers out of commission by throwing a batarang and and socking him right in the hand. But as he's doing all of that, he lowers a, a rope and it looks like he snares one of the other muggers and uh, basically just drags him off and at this point the third mugger is bordering on panic you know he's just firing his gun wildly he's running around and he's trying to make his escape he wastes all of his ammo and so he just he at this point he just makes a run for it you know and he runs over to Alfred's limo where Tim is sitting inside and watching all of this happen And he's begging for whoever's inside the limo to let him in so that he can uh, make his escape. And obviously, Alfred isn't really too interested in helping criminals escape from Batman. So the mugger, and this takes us to page five, the mugger just sinks in despair. And he's just kind of babbling at this point. He's saying, oh, God, oh, God, what did I do? What did I do so wrong? And then Batman comes out and answers that question for him, you know, and basically what we see is Batman in this whole encounter, he saves uh, the family. He takes out one mugger with a batarang. He takes out another mugger with a rope. And then he uses basically that, that stuff kind of as psychological warfare to kind of break the third mugger. And, It's only when it's all over that you realize Batman hasn't thrown a single punch in this entire exchange, you know, he's scared the shit out of a lot of people. He's deepened his own uh, reputation in the city, you know, as a sort of monster or boogeyman or whatever you want to, however you want to look at it, but he hasn't really inflicted like lasting physical damage on anybody. You know, and that's not to say that Batman is incapable of that. Obviously, he's an ass kicker. But the thing about Batman that I like is, yeah, I love seeing Batman kick everything that even resembles an ass. Don't get me wrong. I love that. How many times have you guys heard me say that when I was a kid and somewhat as an adult that my ideal Batman movie is just nothing but Batman beating the crap out of people? You know, guys, I honestly don't know how many times I've said that. But it does bear repeating, you know? I mean, I wasn't kidding around. I meant that, you know? There was a time when I was a kid where all I wanted was to watch Batman beat the snot out of people. But as much as anything, what I think kind of pushes a lot of uh, Batman uh, sort of fanboy buttons is watching Batman, I guess, be Batman you know, be the creature of the night, be scary, be the dark street avenger, you know? And that doesn't necessarily take the form of of beating the stuffings out of somebody. As often as anything, it can be just scaring the shit out of people, you know? And that's what we see here. I mean, you know, no one really got hurt. Yeah, some guy got whacked in the wrist with a batarang, but apart from that, There really were no physical injuries of uh, any kind to speak of. And yet, these guys, when they get out of jail, these guys are going to go to the bar, and they're going to talk to people about what Batman did to them. And when they're in jail, they're going to tell other people in jail how Batman scared the hell out of them. And then, you know, when they uh, go off on some new job, perhaps in a year, a year from now, they're going to tell the stories about how they shot Batman and the, the bullets just passed right through him. And, you know, it speaks to criminals as a superstitious and cowardly lot, you know. And Marv Wolfman doesn't just put the story on pause and say, and this is Batman being a dark, mysterious creature of the night. And criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot. No, you see it in action. And to me, that's always the better way to do characterization, you know? Don't tell me. Show me, you know? And we see it, you know? The first six pages of this issue, or five pages, I should should say. The first five pages of this issue show us. But just in case, you know, there's anybody who's reading this and is retarded... We get into page six, where Batman somewhat explains his methodologies to, uh, to Tim. And this is when you discover that this is all part of Tim Drake's training and vocation to become Robin. And Bruce explains that the idea is to always minimize danger for any civilians in the area, as well as for yourself. Don't let anyone see you unless you want them to. And. Duh, of course, that's how it would have to work, you know, I mean, the risk that Batman takes every time he goes out on the street is some criminal firing off a lucky shot and then he gets nailed right in the head. Boom. Batman's dead, you know. So what Batman has to do is strike from the shadows, you know, take people out through kind of passive means, you know, or take him by surprise, you know, and stuff like that. The idea of swooping down into the middle of everything and putting his hands on his hips. Da-da-da-da! I'm Batman. Halt, evil doer. You are under arrest. I mean, that whole kind of Adam West thing. Look, I love Adam West. I really do. I love that take on Batman. But that's not the version of Batman that we're seeing here. This is a dark, driven, gritty Batman that lives in a very dangerous world where he has to do dangerous things. And the only way to really make that happen successfully is to give himself the winning edge. And so what he has to do is throw batterings from the shadows, you know, set traps for criminals so that they snare themselves and basically they take themselves out of commission. And then he basically just thins the herd one by one by one. You know, instead of trying to fight everybody all at once, he just picks them off one at a time. And that is just such a clever and obvious. It's so obvious. This is this is the perfect way to do it. And this, I think, is what people enjoy seeing with Batman, where he just picks criminals off one by one. And yet, how rarely do we see that in comics? You know, I mean, you see it a little bit in uh, Batman Begins, I think, but For the most part, this isn't something that you see really even in the movies. I mean, you see it a couple of times in Batman the Animated Series. You see it in the odd comic book here and there. But for the most part, you know, Batman is typically shown to do this kind of stereotypical overachieving superhero kind of a thing where he just dives into this huge gang of violent criminals who are all armed with guns. And somehow he's able to take them all out because I'm Batman. You know, and no, that's not the way it would play out. I mean, he would get turned into Swiss cheese, okay? So the smarter play is always to have Batman strike through kind of stealthy means. You know, he strikes from the shadows. You know, he sets traps. He takes people out, you know, one at a time so that the final guy is basically pissing his pants in fear, you know? And that's just such the smarter way to go. It's not that Batman isn't a good fighter. He's a great fighter. But nobody can take on 12 guys at the same time. You know, that's just, that's insane. And so, anyway, I'm not trying to belabor this, and I know I'm belaboring it. But, you know, the point is, this is just such an obvious way to do a Batman sequence. And it's just how rare do you ever see a Batman sequence like this? You know, it's just... Really well done. And speaking of well done, again, this is on page six, right here in panel three. I dig the coloring in this panel because one of the things that a colorist has to do is create contrast. You know, different things have to stand out against uh, backgrounds. And a colorist ideally is supposed to be not exactly uh, the same way an inker embellishes art but a colorist still has to embellish the art. And so what Adrienne Roy does here on page six and panel three is she kind of creates a sort of a depth of field with the color where Bruce is standing closest to the fireplace and as it happens to the camera. And so he's got this fiery red kind of monochromatic uh, coloring on him, right? Tim is a little bit further away. he's He's uh, sitting behind a uh, uh, Bruce on the couch and he's sitting a little bit further away from the fire. and so he's this uh sort of a a, a softer orange, more of uh, more of like a yellowy sort of gold type of a color. And then finally, Alfred is standing behind Tim and it's this sort of a drabby sort of a brown color. And all of this is basically determined by how close they're sitting to the fire. And so there's contrast that's being created in the coloring here. Bruce is red, Tim is yellow, Alfred is brown. But at the same time that there's contrast going on, Adrian Roy is also creating depth of field with the light, which is coming from the fire in the fireplace, you know. And this is just such a a great effect, you know. It's subtle. It doesn't call too much attention to itself, but if you notice, you notice. And I think it's really well done. I really enjoy this, you know? So the other thing uh, that's happening here is, uh, Jim Apparo. like I say, his line style has kind of suffered a bit, but he still has mastery, I suppose, over the fundamentals of, of, visual storytelling of graphical storytelling where bruce in this panel his facial expression is he's correcting tim about something right tim is being a little bit inquisitive he's asking questions and he's trying to understand things and then alfred is holding tim's coat standing behind tim and three different things are are being accomplished just in this one panel bruce is is playing the part of the kind of brooding mentor tim is playing the part of being uh the the inquisitive um understudy i suppose and then alfred is there to say hey tim it's time to go back to uh to uh your uh, school dorm right So, three different things are being, uh, this is just a really fucking well done panel, I must say. I mean, when you really start analyzing everything that's happening in this one panel, you know, between the coloring, between the art, between the writing, this is a really well done panel. I mean, uh, again, I don't want to beat it to death here or anything, but, you know, sometimes in life, you know, you come across a panel that is just, just ridiculously well done on a technical level, and, well, here we are. So moving right along, getting into page eight, Bruce places a call to, to Lucius Fox. And as I recall, Lucius wasn't a major part of Batman comics at this time. I mean, now he's a huge part of Batman, but back in these days he was around, but mostly he was just, you know, the, the kind of warm, friendly, amiable guy, amiable guy that ran bruce's companies for him but he wasn't like a major character in the books right so i kind of like this iteration of Lu- of lucius i mean i see the appeal of um lucius fox as a kind of cue for bruce wayne i see the allure there but i don't know well whatever but Every now and then, you get a little bit of insightful dialogue into these characters and what they're really thinking. And at the bottom of page 8, the, the uh, fifth panel here, after, after Lucius and, and Bruce hang up with one another, you know, they're finished with the, the phone call, Mrs. Fox says to Lucius, uh, she says, Bruce Wayne, actually interested in work? Will wonders never cease? I thought he left everything for you to handle. And Lucius's answer to that is incredibly insightful. He says, Bruce is sometimes hard to figure out, hun. Sometimes you think what goes on in Wayne Enterprises is the last thing on his mind. Then he'll suddenly say something to prove he knows exactly what we're doing. He's a fascinating man, huh? Simply fascinating. And it speaks to the fact that Bruce's disguise is intentional. You know, Bruce wants to be seen as a, a playboy sort of dilettante, but his facade his disguise is not necessarily perfect every now and then people do see through him and i'm going to be coming back to that before too long but lucius knows that bruce wayne isn't he's not always what he appears to be you know so i'll circle back to that later elsewhere uh getting into page 9 again this is one of those things that i just fucking love seeing in Batman comics, you know, where Gordon and the Gotham City police, they found a dead body and they're talking over the details of it and everything. And a lot of things get established on this one page. Again, Marv Wolfman is just such a badass, but Marv Wolfman is just awesome. At the top of the page basically what gets established is not only has there been a murder but the cause of death is basically somebody was burned to death and then on top of all of that the the burn path was it started inside the victim and then worked out meaning he burst into flames inside and then the outside of his body burst into flames so that's the first thing that gets established the second thing that gets established just for new readers who are just joining us as there would have been in 1989 which is technically when this issue came out there's a little bit of universe building in in panel two and gordon says when i first came to gotham i thought this this city couldn't sink any lower Every day proves me wrong. And then in panel three, we see that Batman has been spying on the police this entire time. And so he knows exactly what's going on. And so just in three fucking panels, guys, that's it. That's all Marv Wolfman needed. He establishes three different things in three different panels before shifting gears into something else. And I'll get to that in just a second. But one of the things that really works for me about this About this page, apart from just how economical everything is, is what it says about Batman. I mean, yeah, he and Gordon really do have a partnership with one another. You know, Gordon depends upon Batman to do certain things that Gordon himself cannot do. You know, and in turn, Batman depends upon Gordon for access that Batman just doesn't have. You know, so there is a quid pro quo that's going on here. You know, but any other writer, I'm convinced, any other writer would have shown Batman talking to Gordon, and Gordon would have relayed all of this to Batman directly, right? And Wolfman doesn't go for that. Instead, what he does is he has a, uh, a, a CSI basically explain to Gordon what exactly he's found He has Gordon react to that, and he has Batman listen in, and Gordon never even knows that Batman's there, you know? Gordon doesn't even know that he's sharing information with Batman at this point, and I just fucking love that. You know, I love the fact that Batman is, throughout this whole issue, he's always, well, not always, but he's frequently shown to be an observer. He waits in the shadows until he sees something that uh, requires his, his attention, and action from him and then he gives it his attention he takes action or whatever you know but as much as any as anything he waits in the shadows and he just sort of observes things you know he listens he watches and he learns you know and i i really like that aspect of of batman i like that characterization of batman you know and these two issues are really, or this issue in particular, is just chock full of it, you know, really well done. So another thing that's well done is at the bottom of page nine, Batman sees a flash of phosphorescent light, you know, uh, he just happened to be turning his head and he sees it off in the distance. So he decides to go investigate. And one of the things that I like about this, this issue in general, and this type of writing, is that is the fact that, there's not always an internal monologue. Sometimes what you get is that sort of omniscient third-person narration where... Or actually, I guess second-person, really. Where... No, 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 this is third-person. So anyway, fuck it, whatever. But the sort of omniscient, objective, uh, third-person um, narration where the, the captions say, Nothing here to interest... Following police reports don't always pan out. He turns to leave and sees it. And then there's a there's a flash of light off in the distance. The phosphorescent sweep of light burns for an instant, then is gone. An accidental sighting. If he had turned his head a second later, he would have seen nothing. But he did see it. An instant of light where there should have been dark. In that same instant, he's gone. And... I like that. I like that type of narration more than first person. I really don't know when everybody got such a boner for first person narration. But guys, it, it it's pretty fucking tired, you know, because, you know, if this had been like first person narration written by, I don't know, like Frank Miller or something like that, it would, Batman's internal monologue as he's sitting here hunched in the shadows, you know, the internal monologue that Frank Miller or somebody who wants to be Frank Miller might have written would be, my knees throb all of these hours sitting in the shat- in the shadows, but the information pays off. And then, part of being a detective is investigating new information when you find it. I see a flash of light where there should have been darkness and I decide to investigate. It's just fucking, I don't know, I mean look, That kind of hard-boiled internal monologue type stuff. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's fun to read and I kind of enjoy it, but guys, it's just tired. You know, I really wish we could go back to these third-person narration um, captions where you don't really get inside of the character's head, at least not from a first-person standpoint, but you nevertheless get the flavor and the gist of what they're doing and why they're doing it, if not necessarily word for word, what they're thinking, you know? I think this is the better, especially for a character like Batman, I think this just works better, you know? That's just me. So, anyway. From there, this is getting into page 10, where we're seeing Batman the detective in action here, where, uh, page 10, panel 1, he sees a, uh, a dead security guard, and... And he's just rattling off just sort of mental notes to himself. He thinks uh, the internal monologue, or at least the captions. I don't know if this is an internal monologue, but the uh, the captions say poison, quick and silent. He was dead before he could know what happened. Then he moves on to the uh, the electronic lock. It says the lock reads cards imprinted with a personalized computer code. It's been electronically bypassed. Then he sees a security camera. And the, the caption says, the correct wire was severed. Any other would have set off the alarms as well as photographed the intruder. And basically what we're seeing here is Batman making sort of like a mental inventory of the, uh, the intruder's MO. What did they do? Why did they do it? How did they do it? You know, this is Batman basically uber detective. You know, he's, he's just walking along and he's just casually making all of these different observations. And he's not even really, it doesn't even look like he's breaking stride. You know, he's just walking along very calmly, sees the guard, identifies the cause of death, keeps walking. He finds the electronic lock recognizes that it's been bypassed, keeps on walking. He sees the he sees the security camera and sees that the correct wire was cut. He keeps on walking. And I just fucking love that, you know? I mean, again, this is stuff that you... Marv Wolfman doesn't put the story on pause to say, look how subtly I'm writing this character. But it's right here. It's on the page. And I just fucking love it. This is just so good. This is what Batman needs to be, right here. You're reading it, guys. Anyway, so finally he catches up with the thieves. And he basically waits long enough to find out what the game is. You know, he doesn't instantly swoop into action. He, basically what he wants to do is find out what exactly they're up to. You know, why are they here? What do they want to steal? You know? He waits for... And this is the point. He's basically waiting for them to incriminate themselves before he, he goes into full superhero mode. But then he goes into full superhero mode. And of course he does. He's only fighting three guys. What, you mean to tell me that Batman can't take on three guys? Look, these guys, it looks like only one of them is armed, right? And so Batman would take those odds, you know? And so... Uh Batman basically takes he attacks the one that looks to be the biggest uh and the biggest threat overall the big this is the guy that has the biggest muscles and he's just the biggest guy. Batman takes that guy out first, and the other two well they just fuck it up for themselves uh one of them uh basically throws this cart full of fur coats at Batman who somersaults over it and then slams the guy head first into the uh, the wall, it looks like. Actually, I don't know. Actually, I don't think he actually slams him into the wall. He somersaults and then just slams the guy upside the head. Basically gives him a double kick right to the noggin and uh, lays the guy out that way. And as all that's going on, you can see that the third thief drops his gun and makes a run for it. And... Again, I mean, Batman only fought because he needed a fight, but he he used very kind of surgical strikes here. He gave uh, the big burly guy a judo chop, and then he get, uh, gave him this kind of Chuck Norris sort of spin kick. Then he gave the other guy, uh, like I say, that somersault with the double kick right to the head. And then the third guy, now that Batman's whittled everybody down, he just he's content to just scare the shit out of the third guy, you know, and he's not completely successful, as we'll get into later, but the point is, you know, Batman only fought here because he knew how to win, you know, he didn't go in there without a plan, you know, he knew that he was going to face probably minimal resistance overall, especially once What's-His-Name dropped his gun and made a run for it. And I don't know, I just, I, I, this whole sequence just plays for me. You know, I like that. So elsewhere, uh, Bruce and Lucius, uh, meet with, uh, Jeffrey Fraser, but, but, but on their way into the meeting, uh, Bruce gives one of the uh, secretaries a rose and, you know, Bruce is ladies, man. I kind of like that, you know, uh, this is, I don't know, just kind of a nice thing to do, you know, for, for a secretary, you know, give her a rose. Hey, I think you're doing a good job. You know, keep it up. You know, I appreciate you, you know, just little things like that. You know, Bruce, I think would put a premium on knowing how to manage people effectively, you know, but then we start getting into uh, page 13 and really page 14. And, We basically find out who exactly, or at least not who exactly, uh, Jeffrey Fraser is, but basically get a better idea of what exactly he does. And basically what he says is, after your problem with the government, Wayne Tech has a severe credibility gap. I can help you turn that around, but I'm a scientist, not a public relations agent. And he goes on to say, science functions best when properly funded. I'd hate to see Wayne Tech's finances dry up because of an unfortunate mistake. And so basically what Bruce decides to do is, look, if there's a way to make this work, meaning you get Wayne Tech on the up and up, I'll guarantee your funding for the next five years. But here's the thing. What you need to do is act as our public advisor and spokesman. And obviously you'll be compensated for that. And so from there, Lucius basically hands over uh, a work in progress of what wing tech has done so far, hands that over to Raya. And the idea is both sides are going to reconnoiter from here and then they'll meet again later on, you know? And Circling back to something that I said earlier, on page 15, there are times when Bruce is able to fool people. There are also times when people see right through his bullshit. On the elevator ride in Wayne Tower, Jeffrey Fraser says, Raya, what do you think of Mr. Wayne? And Raya's reply to that is, He talks disinterestedly, as if he allows Fox to make all the decisions for Wayne Tech, but he, obviously, is the man in charge. There's definitely more to him than meets the eye. And so, what Fraser says is, it's time to investigate Bruce Wayne. I want to know everything there is to be known. And Raya says, you will. And so, as if all of that isn't enough distrust, the very next panel shows that Bruce doesn't completely buy into their bullshit either. So the distrust there, well, there's more than enough to go around, put it that way. So anyway, after that, Bruce, or I should say Batman, at the bottom of page 15 and the top of page 16, pays a visit to Gordon, gets information about Basically other sorts of high tech crimes that have been going on lately. and after that pays a visit to the the thief that ran away from him in that fur coat robbery, basically pays a visit to him in the in the uh, Gotham City jail, where presumably he gets some, he again tries to get information from the guy. Following that, and this is where we finally start getting into the meat of this crime Smith uh, story, at the bottom of page 16, and then working right on through to uh, working right on through page 17. We basically find out what exactly the crime Smith is. You know who he is, what he does, and basically how this all works, and what Montgomery Mars says. Is he meaning a friend of his, Reese, he said that you you work them out on computers, you figure everything out. He said if you follow Crime Smith's plan, there's no way you can fail. And it goes on to say, or actually, what he said earlier was Reese, he said you plan crimes for people like us to pull. And Here we start getting into something that, when you think about it, how logical is this? You know, there are, I guess, technology-savvy nerds that live in Gotham City, and yeah, they want a piece of the action, but they know that they're not career criminals as such. You know, so it makes sense that they would find somebody to carry out these robberies, and in exchange... What they do is, they arrange it. They do all of the heavy lifting in terms of getting the thieves inside the building to do the robbery in exchange for a pretty significant chunk of the profits. Guys, I totally believe that there would be a criminal mastermind like this somewhere in Gotham City, you know? Somebody who keeps things as anonymous as possible, and so that way, nobody is really able to rat anybody else out. You know, you don't know who you're working for, so you can't roll over on anybody, you know. And this is somebody who understands technology and knows how how to get you inside the building, but isn't going to be so... So good in the field, you know. Maybe they don't know how to use a gun, or they're out of shape, or something like that. You know, they wouldn't be able to run from the police if it came down to that. You know, so they hire criminals to do their dirty work. The criminals get a free score, and the, in this case, the crime smith, uh, who did all of the heavy lifting with planning this this robbery, gets the majority of the money, and everybody wins. It's about as risk free as it possibly can be, and guys how fucking logical is this you know I mean here again Marv Wolfman had his thinking cap on when he created the the crime Smith character but there's a twist to the crime Smith and we'll come back to that later anyway for right now on page 18 we see Batman as infiltrator uh, he basically got the name Montgomery Mar from Reese uh, whenever he paid him a visit in Gotham City uh, jail and one of the things that comes out in this little infiltration thing that we see Batman doing, he's basically laying in a uh, staircase in this seedy apartment. And he's uh, basically disguised as a homeless man, but you can see his Batman mask under his wig and under his hat. And the, the caption says, he waits as he has for the past six hours. Waits and listens. And then... Excuse me. Um, It comes out that Reese gave Batman the name Montgomery Marr. So Batman is basically staking out Montgomery's apartment, disguised as a homeless man. And he overhears Montgomery and his crew planning the robbery, or at least talking about the robbery. And the caption says, Six hours of waiting pays off. And it it just raises the question, you know, how much of Batman's time is just spent waiting for something to happen? And then once it does, he leaves the scene. You know, he has the information he needs, so he leaves. Or he sees the robbery is now in progress, so he swoops into action. Or just whatever it is. You know, how much time does Batman spend just waiting, you know? And it's got to be hours. You know, you could fairly well argue that Batman probably spends more time waiting for shit to happen than he does actually taking action, you know? And again, that kind of makes sense, you know? I mean, if what you're doing is, if you're on a stakeout and you're just waiting to hear specific information, that's going to entail a lot of waiting. Or if what you want to do is stop a purse snatching, well commissioner gordon isn't gonna light the bat signal as somebody's purse is getting snatched you basically have to pick a spot that you know to be a high crime area and wait for a purse snatching to happen and then once it does swoop into action beat the shit out of the purse snatcher and use that to kind of build up your cred on the streets you know you won't necessarily know that a purse snatching has happened until after it's already happened you know you're not going to be able to drive to the other part of town in time to prevent a purse snatching. It's just not going to happen. And so it stands to reason that Batman spends maybe maybe not all of his time, but the great majority of his time just waiting for shit to happen. And I just, again, Mark, or not Mark, Marv Wolfman, the guy just has his thinking cap on all through this issue. I just love it. So... Anyway, this is getting into the bottom of page 18. This is a little bit different from Batman's methods up to this point in the story. Montgomery Marr basically, uh, and his crew, they part ways with their lookout, basically saying, if you see any trouble, let us know on the radio, right? So the first thing Batman does after uh, Montgomery Marr and his crew leave to uh, to start the robbery First thing Batman does is is he takes out uh, the lookout guy. Now, Montgomery Marr and the crew, they have no idea how much trouble they're in. And again, Batman pulls back and waits to find out what exactly they're up to. You know, why are they here? What do they want to steal? You know, And as he does so, he learns how they're able to override the uh, security system in the place. He finds out what exactly it is that they want to steal. And then once he's he's done that, he uh, swoops into action. And during the mugging at the start of the issue... Batman basically didn't let himself be seen until the last minute here. He lets himself be seen from the get go specifically so that he can trigger panic inside of all of these different thieves. You know, they're all scared shitless, you know, what's going to happen now, you know, uh, he can't be real. This can't be happening. You know, uh, we better split up so we can make sure we take him out. And, you know, Batman is watching from the shadows. He's stalking all of these people one by one. And then he's taking them out one by one. You know, he slams a car door into one of the thieves and takes him out that way. Uh, another pair of thieves, they're wandering around and Batman picks them off. First, he takes the guy uh, in behind, in the back. And then uh, he moves his way. Uh, you know, once he's done that, strings them up. He waits for... The guy in front to see the guy in back has been—he's uh, been gagged and uh, uh, tied up. He's hanging off the ceiling. So the guy in front is like, "What the fuck?" And we see Batman's fist coming from behind the guy in front, about ready to to knock him out. Another uh, thief sees both of those guys now strung up and hung uh, off the ceiling. Montgomery Mar in this case, and Mar makes a run for it. He sees two more of his crew. Uh, Gagged and uh, hanging from the ceiling. And Batman uses basically uh, psychological intimidation to uh, pressure Marr and try to find out who's planning these robberies. Because he knows, end of the day, Montgomery Marr is a petty crook. There's no way he's got the technological know-how to plan and execute all of these robberies. Batman knows a pattern when he sees one, and this is it. You know, whoever organized this robbery for Marr is the same guy that organized the fur coat robbery for Reese. It's the same person, and Batman wants to know who it is. So Batman scares the shit out of Montgomery Marr into saying, uh, uh, Montgomery Marr says, Crimesmith, and that's it. Crimesmith is... Realizes what's about to happen, that uh, he, meaning the crime smith, is about to be implicated. So he pushes the button, and Montgomery Marr bursts into flames and dies on the spot, leaving Batman saying, Crime smith? Is that his name? Crime smith? And that's the end of the issue. So that's the to be continued moment of. Of this issue. And this is... Guys, this is just a ridiculously well-done issue. And I just fucking cherish it. This is great. Now... As to Batman, number 444, though... Probably we need to get into that. This is Batman, number 444. Cover date is February 1990. On sale date is January the 2nd, 1990. Penciler is Jim Aparo. Inker is Mike DiCarlo. Writer is Marv Wolfman. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist is Adrian Roy. Associate Editor is Dan Raspler. Editor is Denny O'Neill. Title is Crime and Punishment. Story synopsis goes a little something-something like this. This issue picks up where the last one left off. Batman demands answers from Mars' surviving crew, but they refuse to talk. Gotham City police, led by Dana Hanrahan, barge in and take over the bust so Batman leaves, blaming himself for Mars' death. Back at Wayne Tech, Bruce and Lucius meet with Jeffrey Fraser and his secretary, Ryo, once again. Jeffrey gives Bruce a proposal of his different ideas for fixing Wayne Tech's problems. Lucius is convinced that they should hire Fraser to manage the company's uh, public image, but Bruce says that he's holding off on hiring Fraser for right now, which shocks the hell out of Lucius. Later that night, Batman spies on Gordon meeting with the coroner, who explains that Montgomery Marr died from a device embedded inside his neck, which triggered a process of combustion, which began inside of Marr's body, and then worked its way outside until the victim was completely consumed by the flames. The coroner said that whoever created the d- the device is basically a mad scientist. Later, Bruce and Tim sort through Mars' wallet, which Batman stole from the crime scene earlier in this issue. They find a printout of the garage folded inside his wallet. Bruce's move is to identify which computer, or at least which print or w- which printer, printed the map of the garage out. And Jeffrey Fraser is a, is identified as one of the suspects, or at least one of the possibilities. Bruce compares the printout to the proposal that Fraser provided in the meeting uh, from earlier in this issue, and realizes he's found his man. So Batman swings into action. After Tim provides a list of properties owned by Fraser, Batman finds Crime Smith's hideout and is forced to run a gauntlet of different uh, traps that are designed to kill him. As he does so, it comes out that Raya is the real brains of the operation. She is actually the crime smith. She just used Jeffrey Fraser as a front man specifically to misdirect anybody who might ever come looking for the crime smith. The flames uh, that Fraser triggers eventually blow up the chemicals in the lab, Raya uses remote-controlled machine guns to silence Fraser before he can implicate her as the real crime Smith, and so Batman narrowly escapes death as the crime Smith's hideout is burned to the ground. The end. So, what did I think? Well, literally, uh, right from the start, this is just a really cool cover. I dig this cover. It's basically a sort of generic, um, almost like a pinup shot of Batman sitting on top of a building with his cape flapping majestically in the breeze and all of these Gotham City skyscrapers uh, in the background behind him. And he's basically just keeping watch over his city. And I just love this kind of imagery. I mean, it doesn't really work so well. to Like, if you were to picture Superman, you know, squatting down on top of a building like this, sort of like a predator, it, it just wouldn't work as well, you know? But it works like gangbusters for Batman, especially this just enormously, impossibly huge cape that he's got flapping around in the wind like this. I just fucking dig it. This is just so well done. I love it. I would love to have this as a poster. I mean... I know it's never going to happen, but I'd love to have this as a poster. This is just an incredibly well-done cover, you know? So, but what I do need to say is, here again, I didn't buy this issue brand new off the shelves. This was uh, something that I had to come back to as a back issue later on. And unfortunately for me, I wasn't able to get uh, this issue along with Batman number 443 uh, in that action figure bartering deal that I had going with that kid, Adam, who lived up the street from me when I was a kid. He didn't either. He didn't have Batman 444 or else he just didn't show it to me when he when he presented his inventory. So as a result, I didn't get Batman 444, at least that day. I had to I think I waited. I had to wait something like six months or maybe even a full year before I was able to pick this issue up as a as a back issue after a visit to uh, my LCS, and I don't know, I thought this was when I was a kid. I, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I fully appreciated um, the how this issue serves as a conclusion to the story that was started in Batman four forty three. I definitely appreciate it as an adult. You can be sure of that. And one of the things that comes out in... Actually, I'll circle back to this later, but there's a minor historical footnote of some importance going on here, where... Well, whatever, like I say, I'll I'll just come back to it later. So anyway, to finally get into page one, though, it picks up literally where the last issue left off, you know, Batman kneeling down over the smoldering remains of what used to be Montgomery Mar, And you can still see that, you know, there's smoke and tiny little traces of fire uh, in what's left of the body. And it's overall, it's just, you know, pretty gross to look at, you know, <clears throat> and the captioning really does a good job of setting the scene you know, the art is really well done, don't get me wrong, but the, the narration the narration boxes basically say, or the caption boxes, I should say, uh, what they say is, his flesh and blood are still warm to the touch, the stink of sulfur thick and suffocating. Most of what was Montgomery Marr, third-rate thief, is simply red-stained ash crumbling to the ground or scattering to the wind, and this is just pretty grisly stuff. And one of the things that I kind of like about this, it comes out on page two, is one of uh, Montgomery Marr's uh, uh, crew, he basically accuses Batman of having done this, you know, like Batman used some sort of magic to uh, kill Montgomery Marr. And guys, that's a story that's going to get circulating among the Gotham City underworld, you know? I don't think that Batman necessarily wants to be viewed as a killer, but the fact remains that Montgomery Marr is still dead, you know? And he died using very strange means. You know, this is a very weird, a very weird uh, cause of death, right? And that story that Batman basically made somebody spontaneously combust, is going to be circulating among the Gotham City Underworld because criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot. And I just love this. I mean, here again, Marv Wolfman has his thinking cap on in terms of what is this incident going to do to Batman's reputation among Gotham City's Underworld. And you better believe that, you know, Batman's reputation, it just went up a couple of notches. And... I just, I dig that, you know, the ambiguity surrounding Batman and the Gotham City Underworld. Some people don't think he exists. Some people think he's human. Some people think he's a monster. Some people think he's Satan. I mean, it, it's, it can be so many different things, you know, and Batman, he can't completely hide his existence. So what he can do is... Create a lot of ambiguity, or at least use ambiguity as it comes along, to enhance his reputation. You know, and I just fucking dig that. You know, so well done. So that's uh, page two. Now getting into page three. This is what I was talking about earlier. A little bit of minor historical significance going on here. It's not a big uh, a big deal. Isn't made of it here. But this is the first appearance of Detective uh, Dana Hanrahan, a homicide detective from GCPD. And she's going to pop up a little bit in uh, Batman comics over the next couple of years. You know, she's not a major character by any means, but she's a recurring supporting character, you know. And she's basically one of Gotham City's good cops. You know, she's a very driven and determined cop. I just, I like... Hanrahan, you know, very well done. So, like I say, it's not a big deal here. A big deal isn't made of her here, but you know, she does appear again in future issues. But one of the things that come out that 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 comes out here is she's obviously pro Batman on some level or another. She listens to Montgomery Mars uh, crew basically accuse Batman of of killing Mar, And instantly she doesn't, she doesn't believe that. She asks Batman if that's true. And she, Hanrahan, basically just assumes that this happened outside of Batman's control. And she says, you couldn't have known. And Batman obviously is still taking this personally. So anyway, really, really well done. And we see on page four, the first panel, Batman is He's hanging around the Batcave. He's obviously disappointed that he couldn't save Montgomery Marr. I mean, yeah, the guy may have been a crook, but let's be realistic, guys. Nobody, but nobody deserves to die the way that Montgomery Marr died. You know, that's just way over the line. So anyway, (sighs) moving right along, we get this. We get this brief meeting between uh, uh, Maya, or sorry, not Maya, Raya, Jeffrey Fraser, Bruce Wayne, and Lucius Fox. And after the other two leave, Bruce and Lucius compare notes on what exactly they plan to do with uh, Jeffrey Fraser and his and his services. And Lucius is shocked as hell to discover that. Bruce isn't committed to to hiring Jeffrey Fraser at least yet, you know? Again, it's not, it's a big deal isn't really made out of this, but you can tell that Lucius doesn't completely understand what's going on here. So anyway, I just like that, you know, that Bruce doesn't always, in fact, he rarely tips his hand, even with somebody like Lucius Fox. I, I just, I like that. And speaking of things I like, I I spent enough time gushing about this in the last issue, but on page five, what we've got here is Batman spying on Commissioner Gordon's meeting with the coroner. And here again, you know, Batman doesn't take the time to get this information from Gordon. He basically spies on Gordon and then listens in on whatever Gordon hears. And then he acts upon that, you know, he's not necessarily doing this with Gordon's permission. Now, obviously, he and Gordon are allies. I mean, I'm not saying that they that they're not. But, you know, this is, you know, this is something that Batman is doing independently of Gordon. And this, when you think about it, I mean, this kind of puts Gordon in the position of not having to pick and choose what he tells Batman. You know, Batman basically has access to everything that that Gordon knows everything that Gordon hears. And so it's logical that, you know, Gordon doesn't have to censor himself because on some level, Batman, Batman already knows, you know? And I just, I like that, you know, it's just so well done. You know, Batman doesn't necessarily waste time meeting with Gordon. He, he, basically cuts to the chase by finding out what Gordon knows, as Gordon himself finds out about it. And when you think about it, from a writing standpoint, that is the more efficient way to to write a scene like this. But, uh, I don't know, I could just, I, I could read scene, scenes like this all day long, you know? I mean, Yeah you need to have scenes with Batman and Gordon so that the reader knows that they really are on the same page with one another. But you don't always have to show Batman and Gordon uh, putting their heads together to figure out what the hell's going on, you know? And I like that. Now, starting on page six and then going forward from there, and also getting, I suppose, into pages... Uh, 7, and page 8, and page 9, you know, basically, this is where this story kind of shows its age a little bit, Batman number 443 and 444 came out in a time and in a place when, when it comes to a lot of offices and homes and stuff... Most people had dot matrix printers. Now, for those of you who don't remember dot matrix printers, I'm sure you can find a YouTube video that'll show you what a dot matrix printer was. But suffice it to say, it was a different print technology than most of you are accustomed to using today. Bruce says that the the printout of the map that he pulled out of Montgomery Mars Wallet, this was made and print it out on a laser jet printer, and elliptically, what you can assume is that not just anybody had a laser printer, even though these days, I don't think you even can buy dot matrix printers anymore. I think laser jets are all you are all you can find anymore, and it's kind of funny that at the bottom of page six, uh, Batman says, Tim, think about it. The angled and circular lines are jagged, not straight, indicating that they were printed out with a computer. Secondly, laser printers use toner cartridges to control how black each print is. And it's like, Marv Wolfman is explaining to the printer, these toner cartridges with quote fingers, that they don't look the same way that a conventional dot matrix printer looks. You know, and... If you're reading this, you know, as a kid in, or even a teenager for that matter, in the nineties, you may very well have never actually seen a laser jet printer before. You may not have even heard of one, so it needs to be emphasized to the reader that a laser jet printer is not the same. As it doesn't give a different number one, it it gives a different kind of printout as compared to. Uh, the, the dot matrix printers that most people are are used to but number two the the thing is guys what you're supposed to assume is laser jet printers are not exactly a dime a dozen you know not just anybody has one of these so this is there's not there, there won't be very many owners of laser jet printers to be found anywhere in Gotham City. And as far as I know, that's actually true. I mean, they're, you know, you could find laser printers back in 1989, but they weren't, they weren't anywhere near as prolific as they would be even just a couple of years later. You know, this was still sort of uh, boutique kind of technology, right? And it's actually very clever of Batman to pick up on the fact that uh being as this was uh printed from a from a laser printer we may be able to find the printer that first created this and use that to uh home in on the guilty party you know and sure enough you know batman starts that process after which he and tim start exercising and we get a little bit of character development with with uh tim in terms of what is his family life like, you know, because unlike Dick and unlike Jason, Tim comes from a a dysfunctional home, but a unified home nevertheless. His parents, they don't really get along with each other as well as they might, but they're still married to one another. You know, this is still a nuclear family. And that made Tim very unique in... I guess in terms of the succession of Robins that there'd been up to this point, Dick Grayson was an orphan. Jason Todd was partially an orphan, and he spent the the majority of his life assuming that he was an orphan. So for all practical purposes, he too was an orphan. And here comes Tim, who's relatively well-adjusted. He doesn't necessarily have the same anger that an orphan might have. He's not necessarily racked with the same pain and the same guilt and the same grief and so he's coming at robin you know the like robin as sort of an abstract concept he's coming at this from i guess a little bit more of a liberated point of view where he's not doing this from a sense of vengeance he's doing this from more from a sense of admiration you know he admires batman he admires or at least dick grayson is robin and he wants a piece of that legacy for himself but this isn't some sort of a personal vendetta like it was for uh, jason todd or it wasn't a choice of desperation or anger like it arguably was for dick grayson you know uh tim's motives are a little bit more altruistic you know and That comes out in this story, you know, and I just really appreciate that. You know, that's to me, that's an insightful way to to write Tim Drake. You know, I just I like that. So anyway, from there, Bruce gets a match on his findings and identifies Jeffrey Fraser as a suspect. He compares the printout of the of the exotic car museum with the printout from the proposal that uh, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Fraser provided earlier in the meeting with Wayne and uh, with Bruce and Lucius and so based on that he knows he's got his man he tells Tim to find out all the different properties that are owned by uh, Jeffrey Fraser and then heads out into the night and he finds uh, crime smith's headquarters and then from there this stuff is it's a little bit harder to rationally critique and analyze Because it's really just Batman escaping from one trap, and then falling ass backwards into another trap, and then he escapes from that trap, then falls into another trap, etc, etc. And, you know, takes his lumps along the way, but in the end, manages to uh, catch at least Jeffrey Fraser. But by that point, Raya has basically already abandoned uh, Jeffrey. She's read the writing on the wall. She knows where this is going. And so what she's doing is she's basically bugging out so that she can leave Jeffrey behind as a patsy. And sure enough, that's what happens because on the very next page, Batman swoops into action, finds uh, Jeffrey's sort of control center here, tries like hell to arrest Jeffrey, but then he runs into the uh, the flames trying to find Maya. Why do I keep saying that? Wait, is her name Maya or is it Raya? Because I swear to think it's been both now. Whatever. I'm just going to call her Raya because that's what I've called her by now, but I see Maya on page 20, so anyway. Batman, uh, on page 21, shouts that uh, that she abandoned Fraser, and uh, basically she just wanted to save herself, and Fraser, for his own part, finds that a little bit difficult to believe, saying that she took care of me. She was the one who, and that's about as far as he gets because these remote control machine guns open fire on Jeffrey Fraser before he can implicate her as being the the real crime smith. And then that's pretty much the end of, you know, the story. That's pretty much where it ends. And I just dig this story. I mean, first off, I dig the characterization, you know, Batman kind of has a, he's basically written smart. You know, this is a guy that, considers everything that he does before he actually does it, you know? And he's uh, he's passive when he needs to be passive. He's active when he needs to be active. You know, He maybe he takes an active hand and beats the shit out of uh, thieves and criminals and stuff. Or maybe he holds back for a little bit to find out what exactly they're up to and what they're trying to steal. Or maybe... He listens in on uh, Commissioner Gordon's uh, private conversations to save himself the trouble of getting that information from Gordon directly later on. I mean, this is a Batman, and this is the point, this is a Batman that basically does his job in an intelligent kind of way, you know? And I just dig that, you know? I like the fact that, you know, this is a Batman that's a little bit more conscientious, I suppose and it's just such amazing writing. And the real, the real, I guess, beauty of these issues, Batman 443 and 444, is that, I don't know this to be true, but I'd imagine they go for pretty cheap as, as uh, back issues. And so you can find these issues for not all that much money. And it's, a, it's just a fun and, uh, and enjoyable two-part story. You know, Batman up against this shadowy, invisible crime boss, and you know, doesn't really catch his. You know, he doesn't really get his man. He does He never really puts handcuffs on the guilty party, and it allows the Crime Smith to return in the future. Now, I don't think the Crime Smith ever does, but it is at least possible that she could come back at some point in the future. And I just really enjoy this story. This is just a fun. Batman story it's it, it's very enjoyable I love it so highly recommend it and uh, like I say I don't know that this story has ever been reprinted I'm pretty sure it hasn't been but you can find these issues as back issues for pretty cheap I would think and so anyway and that is pretty much that uh, for me this week now as to next week, I've got a little bit of an idea of what I'm going to be talking about, but I haven't completely made up my mind yet. I haven't really committed to it. So I don't want to make promises and then have to change my mind later. So my point is though, is that I think is pretty much it for me this week. So bye everybody. I will see you next week.